Gospel of Luke chapter 16 is where we are this evening. Luke chapter 16. I trust you enjoyed, didn't mention it this morning, but I trust you enjoyed the ministry of the Reverend Derek Bowman. I managed to squeeze in time to listen to the sermons yesterday and was encouraged myself in the word that was brought. Certainly challenging messages. Hope they, they landed and bore profit in your own soul. We continue our study here in Luke chapter 16 and Last time we, we got as far as verse 12, we have that somewhat challenging parable that is recorded for us in the opening verses of Luke chapter 16. And we want to begin reading at verse 13. Luke 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one tittle of the law to feel. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Amen. Ending the reading of God's Word at the close of verse 18. Let's once again seek the Lord in prayer. I ask you to, in your own heart, in your own soul, ask the Lord to speak to you and minister to you. Our God, we come to Thee. And again, we are thankful for the call of our Lord Jesus Christ to serve, it, it, it helps to know that God has not left us to try and decide how to live, but has given clarity. And we are called to give of our best to the Master and to give our hearts to the One who loved us and gave Himself for us. Give grace to every child of God, to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. And help us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's so much in that, Lord, and I pray that each one of us would these words, these challenges to surrender are familiar to many of us, and sometimes we can get numb to them because we have memories of giving our hearts to Christ, and we think we've done it, it's happened, it's something of the past, and in a measure that's true, but we can drift, and we can get to a place where we need to give our hearts afresh, not in salvation, but we need to get where we ought to be as Christians. So, God, we pray that every professing child of God here would be very clear in their consecration to Christ. Let it not be that we meander half-heartedly. Help us then, we pray. Even tonight, cause thy word to be a help to each of us in this regard, and that we would sense that fresh call of our Lord to take up our cross daily and follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The chapter that is before us, beloved, uh, puts a subject in our view that often, as believers, we don't discuss very much. I mean, we discuss it because you can't avoid it, but it's common for us as Christians not really to endeavor to understand more clearly what the Lord would have for us in terms of understanding and practice, and I speak of the subject of money or material possessions. The last time that we came to this chapter, we looked, as I've said already, the opening verses, which gives to us the parable of the unjust steward. And there are some challenges with that parable, but the bottom line is this, that our Lord uses it to lay before His disciples, that's those He's addressing, chapter 16, verse 1, He said also unto His disciples, there was a certain rich man. Later on, He's going to talk about another rich man, verse 19. So he has this in view, the idea of wealth and a proper understanding of it. The first parable is directed to those that profess to follow Christ, to belong to Him, and he uses it as as a way of driving home this point. With whatever you have materially, whatever you possess by way of the things of this world, make sure you're rich toward God, make sure that you manage those things in such a way that it is not merely about having them purely for your own comfort, but you're serving them, or you're serving the world and serving your generation and serving the people around you with what God puts in your hand. We are to, and there's different ideas about verse 9. There's some that think that this is about eternity in terms of us being uh, somewhat praised in eternity, uh, that when we feel, that is when we die, they receive you into everlasting habitations. Different ideas about that, but the, but the real idea is simply this, that we are to use, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of righteousness, use it aright. And of course, the truth is that we're well aware of Don't wait until you have a lot before you get this policy. Verse 10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. And the temptation for us is to, well, if I had more, I would give more. The Lord is saying that's not how it works. With whatever you have before God, manage it in such a way To use the language of another portion, you're laying up treasures in heaven. So this is a word to the disciples. They need to get a hold of this. They have certain material things. The disciples that stood before the Lord Jesus, some of them were men of means. Whether you would describe them as rich in their day is up for debate, but certainly Levi would have been a man of means. Peter appears to have two homes. And you go down through the list of the disciples and you realize these are not men that that had nothing. Jesus Christ didn't take beggars off the street. These were working men and they had means. And part of the challenge for them was, how how do I manage the means that God has given to me? Well, as that is put before them, there are, of course, those that are in earshot and they can hear what the Lord Jesus is teaching. And you come to verse 13 which is what we're looking at tonight. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's bottom line. And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things, and they derided him. So then the Lord begins to teach more and press more in relation to things that would bother the Pharisees. And so... What I have done tonight in looking at verses 13 through 18, I've titled the message simply, Particulars of Kingdom Living. Particulars of Kingdom Living. He, he deals with a number of matters here. And I've, I've tried to simplify the subjects for you and to, to note just simple ideas and thoughts we see in these verses. So note with me, first of all, only one master. Here's the first particular of kingdom living. Only one master. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. It can't be done, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. 
First, we see here, and it's not just there, we will go in and see the Pharisees as well, but there's the truth discussed and the truth derided. The truth discussed and the truth derided. Remember the word mammon, just so you're clear, the end of verse 13 is, is probably from an Aramaic word that simply refers to worldly possessions. Because not, not everyone is rich with cash. Sometimes they're rich with, with, with lands and with, with cattle and so on. So just having worldly possessions. And Christ says there are two potential masters in life. We might say the spiritual and the material. But both of them have this certain force behind them that endeavor to be Lord. And they put pressure on you. One is God. He puts pressure on you. He calls you to make Him Lord. But then you have the material. You have the world in which you live. And it also cries out that you make it Lord. Now, when you read the language, either He will hate the one and love the other, or else He will hold to the one and despise the other, or cling to the one and despise the other. It's not intended to give us, a, 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 to take away from this that Christ wants His people to hate the material world. And, I, and I, I, I use that carefully. We are not to fall into a trap of hyperpietism or Gnostic belief where we believe that all material things are bad. Remember your God came and took on flesh took on material form. And if you have that Gnostic idea that all that is material is bad, you end up in all sorts of theological conundrums and issues. You end up in Gnostic ideas. And, and so this can happen easily. It can happen especially in our own circles in which you'll, you'll read certain men, and I, I would say largely they are good. They are good in terms of their devotional help. Men, and I'm not going to name them, but... There are certain men I could name. I don't want to make it that you take away that I shouldn't read those, those people. But they're, let's, just say, let's give one that's very popular, Tozer. Tozer's very good. But you could read Tozer and you, be, you, you could become hyper-pietistic. And you could begin to think that parts of the material world are just all should be discarded and hated because, he, because of the influences in his life. Now, there's much that's good because our problem isn't <laughs> isn't the fact that we are tend to go that way. Our problem is that we tend to be carnal. And so Tozer can be a great help to open our eyes to the, the kind of shallowness of that way of living. But anyone who is influenced by mystic writers or mystic doctrine, you will, you will find you just have to be careful. You have to be careful about what it is they're calling you to hate because not all material things are, are to be despised. And they hate it. In fact, whether you eat and drink, you can do that to the glory of God. You can go to your work to the glory of God. You don't have to be in a nunnery or in a, in, a, in a monastery to serve God. You don't have to be in ministry or a missionary on the field to serve God. There shouldn't be this kind of idea that you're living a lesser Christian life because you, you, you aren't like some of these people you've read of maybe in history. So I just put that as, as a cautionary note. Christ's not calling you to hate, hate every worldly possession. Like hate the worldly possessions that you have. That's not, not the point. But the point is this. Just as God calls His creatures to make Him Lord and serve Him, so does the world. And your worldly possessions have a voice that call you to serve them. They make demands of lordship on your conscience and on your heart. This is why Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. Colossians 3.5 Covetousness is idolatry. That longing, that craving, that yearning for things other than God that supplant the place that only God should have, that, that has to be called to the place where it ought to be, ought to be repented of and removed as a threat upon our love for God and for Christ. It very easily can become a God that wishes to be served. And then you, you have this will or this longing for it, this, this compelling force behind it. And that's what Paul warns of in 1 Peter chapter 6, verse 9 and following, when he says about they that will be rich. The idea is they will to be rich. They long to be rich. 
And they fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money. Not money itself. The love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, we, we take this to heart because there's a, that, that temptation is in us. It would be a very strange thing to stand here in the most prosperous nation on the planet, in a prosperous part of that nation, in a congregation that's largely prosperous, and think that there's no danger. There's a danger for us all. Real danger. Falling into this temptation and misplacing our affections. The question is, when you read verse 13, and it's hard, it's hard to, to probe into, where am I here? No servant can serve two masters. You, you simply can't be done. You're making a choice. Now, now, you can use words that say, I serve God. We sang language tonight that would ex you were expressing your wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus alone. You can say that. I can come out of your lips while the reality of your heart is different. So who is governing? Let me ask you, and I want you just to sort of imagine you're on your own here, and you're the spotlight of, of Christ's language here. No servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, right? There, there's this tension in which you're in this material world, and it has this tendency to call out for your affections, Ask, who is governing, God or the material things? Who are you serving, God or the material things? What do you enjoy most? What, what do you enjoy most? Material things or God? God. You see, you see the difference? I mean, even when you come into the house of God, I, I, I'm not your judge. So I'm not, I am not making assessment of your spiritual condition by your physical disposition. I'm not. All right? Where you are is something you must assess yourself before God. However, if things are happening in the world... Material things, worldly things, carnal things, financial things, business things, all sorts of things. And they elevate your joy in a way that you can barely remember a time in which that was true of some spiritual event in your life. You come to the house of God... You're here, but there's no, there's no joy. There's no real enjoyment. And yet you, you leave here and through the other six days of the week, there is great elation at various times over other things separate from God. What do you enjoy most? What are you most afraid of losing? God or stuff? What, what would cause you most fear? If I, if, I, if I lost all my stuff. Or if I lost God. We go to work every day to make sure we don't lose our stuff, don't we? You get up and you go and you're diligent in your business to maintain or advance your stuff. And yet you can neglect very easily the cultivation of your love and your worship and adoration of Christ. This, this is not to easily skim 
bounce off our hearts? What promises give you hope? The ones that God has given to His people or the ones that the world say that work hard, save, invest? What, what promises drive you? How do you view God? Do you view God as joy? He himself is joy? Or do you view God as one who bestows stuff that brings you joy other than him? God, God has given us a record of, of, of his disciples. These disciples that were stripped of so much, that lost so much, gave up so much, and yet they, they continue on because they have, they have Christ. They have Christ. And we're, we're in a place and in a junk, a moment of time in history in which it's very easy to feel like we can have we can have both. We can have God and we can have our worldly things, both of them, to our full. Be careful. Young person, be careful. Remember our Lord Jesus? He had nothing. And when it was offered to him, when Satan came and tempted him, get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. You know, in James, in, in the little epistle of James, a part of the, the, the language and the challenge of James is dealing with those that had means. And there are various parts of that epistle in which he addresses it, such as whenever they, they make way for the other wealthy coming in, and, and the, the poor they almost despise, completely overlook, and have little time for. He calls them in James 4, 8, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. You're double-minded. You're living in this way in which there's this tension that you have created through a lack of wholehearted, singular devotion to your God. You're double-minded. So verse 13 is challenging. Christ says there's one master. He discusses it here in very concise language. But then you have also the truth derided. The truth derided. Verse 14, the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. They sneered at him. That's the idea. So what Jesus is saying and what they are overhearing, and it's, there's no coincidence here. They, they always, there's always a group of them, it seems, trying to be within earshot, right? As much as they hated him, they were very curious, and they always were wanting to catch him in his words and know what, what he was up to. The equivalent, of course, is, is, is like, you know, the, <laughs> the online vigilante who's always watching where someone's going and what they're saying and doing, not in order to really be aware of them, but to try and find fault with their words. Well, the Pharisees would have been good they would have been very diligent in their use of Google if, if it was around in their day, trying to figure out if they could dig up dirt on the Lord Jesus. So they kept within earshot, and they sneer at him. This, was, this, was on, this wasn't one isolated event. This is what they were doing all the time, sneering at the Lord. In Psalm 22 that messianic psalm that tells us details of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 6 it says, I am a worm and a no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. Despised of the people. And generally that was true. You see, the Pharisees had this thought. As they're listening to Jesus deal with wealth and getting the balance and wholeheartedly serving God, first and foremost, and all of that. As they, as they hear how he's addressing it and, and being rich toward God and all the rest of it. As, 
as they get that message, as that comes to them, the problem that they faced was their, their belief that, that, that wealth is one of the most singular evidences of divine favor. That's what they believed. Wealth is evidence of divine favor. So, in order to convey divine favor, because a Pharisee wants to convince everyone that he has divine favor, I mean, that's, that's what he wants to do. He wants people to be convinced that he has the favor of God. Well, there's something within his control to some degree. That is his degree of wealth. So, they would work very hard, or they would do whatever they could in terms of giving themselves such status. Not so much pleasing God, though they would say that's what they're doing, but building wealth. That's the goal. You see, they didn't have the balance. When, he, when the Lord speaks the words that precede verse 14, in that they can sense, you know, they're, they're, there's conviction that they're feeling. Because they know in their heart of hearts there has been a focus on wealth in order to portray that they are favored. And so they sneer. Yes. They sneer. Really, really the, what you have here is as they listen to what the Lord is saying, and we are told, although obviously this isn't what the Lord Jesus says in verse 14, but that begins to unfold in what follows, but they were covetous. They had a covetous heart. They, they, they fell into the, the, the temptation spoken of in 1 Timothy 6 that we've already considered. To, to, to kind of reword another text, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were set on money. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. So they sneer. That's, they, they, they don't see, they don't want to see what the Lord is saying. They feel challenged by it. Of course, just as we'll get to this in due course, but when you come to verse 19, you have one of the most famous parables Jesus teaches, and that was on the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man being in hell, and Lazarus being in Abraham's bosom. And that's targeted directly at the Pharisees. And they are meant to see themselves. They are meant to see themselves. So it goes from him teaching his disciples and they're in earshot to let me illustrate your life. You're like the, this rich man. And as a poor man, that he may serve, he could help, but he doesn't. Every day he leaves his house, he steps over him as if he's not there. And he imagines he has the favor of God. He looks at Abraham and he calls him Father. Imagining that that connection would be all he needs to be in heaven. Only to find out the horror. There's a great gulf fixed and he will never be in heaven. So, only one master. Secondly, only one way of salvation. Only one way of salvation. This is another particular of kingdom living. You need to see there's only one way of salvation and we see this just in, in the, the language. We draw this, I'm simplifying really, verses 15 and 16 under this idea of one way of salvation. Verse 15, And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. Let me just stop there. This is the first idea. If you're going to understand salvation, you need to realize that you can't justify yourself. You cannot justify yourself. The Pharisees thought they could justify themselves. Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. 
So, so I'm trying to see the scene here, right? And Jesus says, you justify yourselves before men. That would seem to be him honing in on the, the language that would attend, or at least the thoughts that would attend the sneering. You don't sneer in a vacuum. You sneer with a thought. And the sneering or the derision that's coming from them is because there's a certain self-justification as Christ pointedly addresses this matter and they feel the convicting influence of it upon their hearts. Instead, they sneer and deride. You, you can see how they might justify their love for material things by, let's say, uh, we use our wealth for good. All right? Like, like, that's an answer. You, you hear him addressing it. We say, we use our wealth for good, but good is, is something other than what the Lord Jesus has addressed earlier. Or, or, or maybe what is more like the case, maybe they quote it Scripture. Their sneering comes with Scriptures as the Lord is addressing the dangers of wealth and so on. I, I can just see them. You know, if you allow me just with the imagination here. Proverbs 10.4, The hand of the diligent maketh rich. You know, another Proverbs that could be quoted, but this idea of, of we are diligent, we are hard workers, it makes you rich and wealthy. This is what God promises so we give ourselves diligently to wealth, and He has favored us, and that favor is on display. This is, this is the justification. Rather than feeling the impact, rather than sensing, yes, tension, yes, challenge, yes, conviction, yes, that sense that at very least, when Jesus speaks, every one of us just stops in our tracks and asks, am I guilty? Does there need to be a recalibration in my life with regard to my relationship to things other than God? Because the humble heart asks that question. You can't not. You read the language of the Lord Jesus. The, the humble heart has to be asking, at the very least, am I appropriately balancing my relationship with mammon? Or has it more hold over me than I might like to admit. So, so the humble one doesn't sneer. The humble one is silenced. Sits back, sits, sits back and asks questions about the heart. Starts to probe whether or not the Lord Jesus, in the point that He makes, finds application in our own lives. But the Pharisees have no place for that. They deride. They immediately launch into self-justification. But you can't be saved if that's how you respond to the hard language of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't. If there are things that Christ says that you dismiss or you reinterpret in such a way to make life easier or to accommodate other idols in your heart, then you are, you're walking a very dangerous path. If you're going to be saved, if you're truly to know the Lord, when challenging language comes from Christ, you, you just you feel it. And you oh God, help me not to fall short here. If I have blind spots, reveal them to me. When you, when you read these verses... In your own reading of Scripture, when you come across them, don't justify yourself. Much of the language of the Lord Jesus Christ is, is intended to drive you into an area you've never visited before. It's meant to take you to places you didn't know you were meant to go to. So you can't justify yourself. If you're, if you're going to be saved, you can't justify yourself. Secondly, you can't fool God. You're they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. God knoweth your hearts. What a word. God knoweth your hearts. How can you sit here tonight unsaved and read that and remain unsaved? 
Lord, how can you sit with Jesus saying, God knows your heart and you're still content with a facade. You're still content with a profession that is devoid of any inner reality. God knows your heart. God knows every man's heart. Men please themselves in meeting the expectations of other men. That's what they were doing. They were sitting there, sneering, and they're all sneering together. Little remarks. You know, the jester's there. There's always going to be the jester with his little wit, quick wit, and turning the language of the Lord. Or some other philosopher or wise man who has mastery in such a way that he is, he is able to, to keep, maybe even as he watches the kind of conviction fall upon the minds and hearts of those that are sitting around or standing near him, he's able to just take a word and immediately their hearts are drawn out after the falsehood presented. Justify yourselves. Yeah, we, 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 we would be foolish to imagine that all the Pharisees were equally similar in every respect here. There would have been leaders in them. Leaders. Though, and those that would have led in the way of sin, led in the sneering. Just, just like what happened to the disciples when, when the alabaster box was broken and presented before the Lord and and you know, everybody's watching. And Judas says, this could have been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor. And then it says, and they all murmured against her. And Judas initiated it. He led the way in the sin. Can't fool God. Our Lord Jesus had nothing. God knew his heart. It was pure. Abraham and Job were rich. God knew their heart, their hearts as well, and they were walking with him. So you can be rich, honored by men, and God hates how you attain your riches. And you can be poor and pitied by men. And God hates how you've come to your place of poverty. This is not about how much we have. This is about our relationship to what we have. And here's the thing. We are to live as before God. It's, it's like, well, man can't see my heart, but God can. And what's more important? Seeing the external? I mean, the external matters, right? I mean... Your, your conduct, your outward, it does matter. It's not like it's irrelevant. The reputation you have is, it's not irrelevant. Nevertheless, we don't live as slaves merely to the reputation that we build. Our first priority is God knows my heart. I must make sure then that I am living as that is the priority, to please God. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 speaks of bringing into captivity every thought. Bring into captivity every thought. Why does it matter? Paul, why does it matter to bring every thought captive? Because God sees the thoughts. And what you allow to, your mind to dwell on will eventually affect other areas of your life. You can't fool God. You can't justify yourself. You can't fool God. You're never going to be saved if you, if you live in some illusion of I can justify myself or I can fool God. No. But thirdly, you can't escape gospel responsibility. You can't escape gospel responsibility. So it goes on, verse 15. Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, 
For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Again, this is just generally speaking. The things that you men are highly esteeming is abominable before God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. With the arrival of the king comes the ushering in of the kingdom, obviously. And many mysteries were now being put before men with clarity. The gospel's being herald, heralded in a way that it had never been heralded before. John the Baptist leads the way on that, but, but largely then through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples, things are being uttered with greater, greater clarity and comprehension than ever had been heard before. And every miracle performed was giving greater light because before they had prophecies and they might think, what's, what's this going to look like? When Messiah comes, what will it actually look like? Well, well all the, the doubt is dispelled by the reality happening before them. And so it was true with regard to the message, not just the miracles, but the message. And the message brings us great clarity. And so the entire nation is feeling the weight, feeling the pressure, seeing the influence and significance of what has happened. They, they had the law and the prophets and John that had brought them to understand something of the truth. But since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it. There, there has never been a day like this day with Christ where crowds are, are feeling this, this overwhelming sense that they have to respond to the message that's being put before them. Never. It never happened before. Not at this scale. I mean, you saw it back at the beginning of chapter 15, didn't you? When it speaks of, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And there are other chapters, if you go back, you can, you can see other chapters previous and look. I'm not going to go back and look for them. But uh, it speaks of the multitudes being around him and so on. This didn't happen. I mean, this, was, this had never happened before in which throngs, thousands of people gather around one man every day to hear what he has to say. It never happened before. Now, do they all get converted? Obviously not. But, but there's a sense of pressing. It's, it's, like, it's like the truth is driving men along, bringing them to a brink of decision, a point where they realize, what am I going to do here? And it's being done on a scale that had never been seen before. Now, whether, as I say, they ever they all pressed in, I would say, obviously, we know not all of them did. But the implication of the language is that this is what they need to do. To be saved, you need to press in to the kingdom. So let me just stop there. Because this is what we all have to do. You're not living in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ with all the miracles. And so there aren't great swelling crowds gathered here tonight or in any other place as we have during the ministry of Christ. But the truth is, is before you. And it calls you to press into it. So it's a very simple question then. Have I actually pressed in? Sitting here is observing. Sitting here is being close. Sitting here is being within touching distance. Sitting here, the kingdom of God is nigh. It's right here. But have you pressed in? It doesn't happen through osmosis. It doesn't just happen through you sitting in church. It doesn't happen, you know, if I'm... If I sit in church, you know, 300 times, then, you know, 301, I become a Christian. It doesn't happen that way. You have to press in. So I ask you, have you pressed in? Have you pressed in? Have you taken Christ, laid hold upon Him, His promise to save, His willingness in the language he says, I will never cast you out. Have you seized upon it? And you can't let go. 
pressing in. Pressing in. Press in, my friend. Press in. You cannot escape gospel responsibility. The way of salvation brings responsibility. You have a duty to believe. Believe this night. Thirdly, only one law of God. Only one law of God. There's only one master, only one way of salvation, only one law of God. Verse 17, And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Two things here. Verse 16, or rather verse 17, speaks of its permanence. The permanence of the law. Now this, this in some way builds upon some remarks we made this morning of those that, that dismiss the law of God. And They will turn you to various chapters, various portions of God's Word, especially in the epistles of Paul, and they will use language of Paul to make you believe that when you read the law or speak of the law or whatever, that it has absolutely no place in your life now whatsoever. It's gone. It's completely irrelevant. It may have some some application, depending on who you talk to, but it doesn't have this weight that it used to have, supposedly. Now, the Reformers were very clear. I mean, they, 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 those that revived truth and brought it to the West and transformed the, the very way in which our countries are governed and so on, they, they understood that, okay, certainly it's not the way of salvation, but it teaches us of, of, the, it teaches us of the character of God it teaches us that we're, we, we are sinners and we need to be saved. And then it has a certain rule of life. But because this shows us the nature of God and the character of God, it then tells us something of what He is calling us to be because you're to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, so it's a guide. It's not, it's, not, it's not a salvific. It has no salvific power. But, but it is a guide to be seen in that light and to help us. But as I say, there are many, and the vast majority of churches in this area, they, they would not agree with our understanding here in this place uh, with regard to the law of God. And, and I was speaking to a brother this morning about, we were talking about some of the things I had said, and I happened to remark, you know, whenever, because one of the things they will say is, is uh, the only commandments that matter are those that are in the New Testament. And when it comes then to the, the Ten Commandments, only those clearly restated in the New Testament, apply. That's what they believe. The vast majority of evangelical churches that don't have a historic confession, like I mentioned this morning, that's what they believe, the vast majority. And so I, I happen to say to this brother, you know, like what were the believers to do between the death and resurrection of Christ and the New Testament? How did they know what was expected of them? What commandments apply? They were running around aimlessly, completely unclear as to what God's will was for their life. Because, well, all of that's done away. The only thing you know what to do is found in the New Testament Scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament Scriptures for decades. They weren't in their possession. So Christians were just wandering around trying to figure it out. No. No, there's a permanence. This is what Jesus is saying. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to feel. This isn't going away. It's not going away. The law of God is not going away. Now there are certain aspects of it that relate to Israel alone. This is again a whole other debate, isn't it? About, well, how do you, how do you parse the law in that way? How do you, how do you see the, the varying aspects or make that division of the law? And they say you can't divide the law. You can't. You can't do it. You know, the law is the law. That means everything. All the ceremonial, all the civil, all the moral. You can't divide it. Scripture doesn't make that distinction. That's what they say. Of course, that's in complete opposition to what Paul says in Romans 2 when he's arguing for the guilt of the Gentiles and saying that the law is written on the heart. What law? All the ceremonial, 
law? All the civil law of us? No. 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 There are times when law refers to that which God wrote with his finger on stone and says, this is a summary of my will. And it's not passing away. That's why it was written in stone. It was there from the beginning. There before there was an Israel. And and these are well-meaning brothers. They're well-meaning brothers. But they are... let Let me say this. There is a rot to this belief that is seen when you lament over where America is today. It's the rot of dispensationalism. The brothers... When you start saying, this doesn't apply, move on a hundred years and welcome, welcome to America. It has a permanence. Christ states it plainly. But there's also a perversion. You see, it's, it's perversion. You look at verse 18, and maybe you're reading that wondering as I was when I was reading it initially. And I was reading over these verses thinking, this is the section I'm going to deal with with the Lord's help this week. And I'm reading and going, what? <laughs> what connection does that have? And when I began to read some of the commentaries, immediately it you know, became clear. You know, obviously, that's, that's what it is. It seems like a strange place. In fact, let's just look at two things here. First, it seems like a strange place to put in the matter of divorce and marriage and adultery and that, that subject matter. But what, what Christ is doing here is, is bringing in another flagrant sin among the Pharisees, just like their relationship to money. He's bringing in something that, that they knew, they knew if he began to probe any further, they would have absolutely no defense because the law had made it clear And God's word was clear with regard to the matter of marriage and divorce and so on. And instead, they had become, not the Pharisees like many like to present them as the great keepers of the law. No, they had become antinomian. They completely disregarded the law. And so, hey, my wife isn't, I don't, (laughs) she's not as pretty as she once was. Get rid of her. She broke something that was, was my favorite thing. Get rid of her. That's the, that's the degree it had come to. Now, this verse isn't arguing for Christ's position on divorce and marriage and so on. That's not the point. It is, is a challenge. It is a charge against them. Just like covetousness was. Lenski says, by bringing in this different group of open sins, Jesus makes the Pharisees understand that he could go on and on by enumerating still other sins, end quote. So, basically the Lord is saying, you have all sorts of sins. You, you stand there sneering, and yet you have all sorts of sins. I mean, if you go back again to the beginning of chapter 15, I was thinking of this, where it says, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Do you think there were those that had... had Maybe they've been divorced and so on, and remarried, and no doubt. But and they would have done it in ways that the Pharisees would have said, "You've broken the commandment. It's wrong what you've done, leaving your husband or wife or so on." There have been all sorts of immorality, breaking of the seventh commandment there, that they would have criticized. But the Lord Jesus does what <laughs> he, he does what he he could do, and he. He, he, pulls, he pulls all men onto a level playing field in one sense, saying, look, you're guilty if not more guilty. You completely disregarded the law in all the various caveats that you put into matters regarding divorce. And so it's, it's not the same as the exposition you find in Matthew and Mark. It's just a very clear statement with no exception Here's what you do, putting away your wife, marrying another, you commit adultery. He's saying, you're adulterous, many of you. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. 
It's rife among you. Well, we do the same, don't we? Those of us who aren't converted, at least, if any be here tonight and you're not saved, one of the things you're likely to do is to look at the law of God and say it's not as stringent, it's not as tight, it's not as narrow as you're saying it is. You write over every commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and there you are, looking at stuff online, harboring thoughts, giving yourself repeatedly to behavior, and trying to imagine that you're not breaking the law. You are. Or all the stuff that you see in social media and the just becoming more overtly vile. And there's something in you that's drawn to it. It's curiosity. And when you first when you first were thinking about it, you're thinking this is breaking God's law, I know it. And then you start to justify yourself. You start to find excuses. Maybe you mention it to another professing Christian who, who says, oh, it's not like you're actually doing anything. And so oh, all of a sudden you begin to numb the feeling. And the algorithms are showing you more and more. And you're being sucked into a world that is leading you down a path of destruction Destroying the soul. When you look at the law of God and you see it in its strictest, tightest, when you, when you go through the larger catechism as we make our way through it and you see it address, address the needs of your heart, you say, that's me. You don't, you don't start justifying yourself. You don't start saying, oh, that's an antiquated way of looking at the law. You fall down and you say, that is my heart. And that's why I need Jesus Christ. That's why I need one who is able to come and fulfill that law. Obey that law. That I might be saved. So when all the filth is put before you and you're tempted and you feel it and you don't, don't drive away the conviction, embrace the conviction and get on your knees Confess sin and embrace with all of your heart. Press in to Jesus Christ. And glory in the knowledge that he died for vile, guilty, hell-deserving sinners. When he's on that cross, he is, he is not doing it for those who, who are going up the clean side of the broad road. He is doing it for those right across the spectrum of all the vilest sins that could ever be enumerated. And he is bearing the guilt of all those sins that he might take you in, touch your life and say, be clean, be clean. The Lord help us to take his word to heart. Let's bow together in prayer. I want to make it clear to you if you're struggling with sin, and you feel like you're caged in, unable to experience deliverance, maybe even brought to a point where you're doubting your salvation, 
don't, don't suffer alone. That's why I'm here, in part. Not to make any judgments, not to hold against you what you may tell me is going on. It's not that you need me, but sometimes people struggle and they just, they're in a, they're in a fog. They don't know the way to the cross. They can't find their way into hope and mercy. And in such cases, my friend, I'm, I'm here to help you find that way. To open up the Word, point you to Christ, who is more than willing to save you, no matter what you've been guilty of. Lord, bless thy word. Deepen conviction in every heart. Deliver us from a numbness to thy word and to thy law. Remove the tendency to justify ourselves or to be satisfied with a life that impresses men when we're still abominable before God. Bring a holy sincerity upon us. Bring a sobering awareness of the unending reality of eternity. And put in every heart a desire to turn on to Jesus Christ. To not to try, not to try to serve two masters, but to serve him fully and wholly. Hear then this our prayer and bless this dear congregation. And may all our lives exhibit a manifest desire to obey all that the law and the prophets teach us, and all our Lord Jesus calls us to. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.